The second reading is taken from Matthew, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, Maggie. Just before the service started, one of my fellow preachers, Norman, came up to me with a wry smile on his face and said, I'll pray for you. <laughs> we see, he gets the rotor as well. He gets the preaching rotor as well. And quite obviously, I've drawn the short straw. I mean, adultery, divorce, Lust, eyes gouged out, limbs chopped off. Should we just go to the last hymn instead? Reminds me of a sign I saw on a church notice board in London, which read, Are you tired of sin? Then come inside. Underneath, somebody had scrawled, If not, phone Bayswater 2379. But I, I, don't know, I don't know what you felt when you... Uh, Maggie, you read that really well. Thank you very much. When you heard Maggie reading. But can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus' listeners? You see, theoretically, no nation ever had a higher ideal of marriage than the Jews. It was a sacred duty that a man was bound to take. The only reason a man could delay, a Jewish man could delay getting married, was if he was studying the law. If he refused to marry and have children, it was said he'd broken the commandment of Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. Furthermore, the Jewish rabbis taught that every Jew, every Jew must surrender his life rather than commit idolatry, murder, or idolatry. Adultery. But the tragedy was that this high view of marriage had actually been abandoned. And that had a lot to do with the low view with which women were held in Jewish society. You see, a woman was at the absolute disposal of her father or her husband. She had no legal rights. 
She could be divorced for all manner of reasons. And in the days of Jesus, divorce was as easy as it is today. Family life was collapsing in first century Palestine. But if the Jews looked to the rabbis for their religion, they increasingly looked to Greece for their culture and learning. In one sense, there was no view of marriage amongst the Greeks. They, they held an equally low view of women. Relationships outside of marriage carried no stigma. To put it bluntly, Greek men demanded absolute moral purity from their wives, but for themselves claimed the utmost immoral license. And Greek religion reinforced that immorality. Temple worship and prostitution went hand in hand. All you needed to do to get divorced was two witnesses, so a man could dismiss his wife for any reason whatsoever. And increasingly, first century Jewish culture was influenced by these Greek values. But there was a third influence which came from the Roman occupation. Now, originally, Roman religion and society was founded on the home. Uh, in fact, the standard of morality was so high that for the first 500 years of the Roman com Commonwealth, there wasn't a single recorded case of divorce. Then came the Greek influence. Militarily, Rome conquered Greece. Morally, Greece conquered Rome. And by the second century BC, divorce had become as common and marriage. An unfortunate necessity marriage, really, to enable your children to bear your name. So guys, I just want to paint this picture for you because if we live in morally confusing times, in first century Palestine, there was even more confusion. And this, this is the moral and cultural background into which Jesus is speaking. To make, to make matters worse, there was no one Judaism in Jesus' day either. There was the Judaism of Judea, which leaned towards the temple. Then there was the Judaism of the Pharisees, who loved the oral interpretation of the Torah, the law of Moses. Then there was the Judaism of the Sadducees, who didn't. But there was also the Judaism of the Hillel tribe who taught that righteous Gentiles could enter the kingdom of heaven. And then there was the Judaism of Shammai who taught that they couldn't. So did you get the picture? In this sort of first century stew of Jewishness, Jesus was just one teacher with his own little T Torah, his own teaching about the capital Torah, the law of, Joseph, of Moses, and the oral tradition. On some points, Jesus' teaching was strict. On others, relaxed. As a Galilean, he wasn't too scrupulous about some of the purity laws. There was nothing in the Torah of Moses about laypersons washing their hands before meals, he points out to the Pharisees. But on important stuff... Stuff about relationships, our relationships with each other, teachings on marriage, divorce, 
and adultery, and especially our relationship with God, his teaching concerned what was written in the scriptures, and he was unimpressed by anybody who embellished it. After announcing his total loyalty to Torah in chapter 5, he goes on to say not once, but six times, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, if he'd been offering some teaching, some improvements on the teaching of the rabbis, that wouldn't have been so shocking. But it wasn't. He was offering an improvement on the teaching of God through Moses, the Ten Commandments. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the truth of that saying lies in the word fulfill. A word Matthew uses 16 times in his gospel to describe how Jesus actually brought the scriptures to life. So in that confused melting pot of cultural influences, when it came to marriage, do you see Jesus was disagreeing with just about everybody in his stance for the sanctity of marriage and the equality of partners. He acknowledges the reality of divorce, but only as a concession to human frailty. So it's not surprising that in Matthew 19, his disciples are astounded at such teaching when they say to him, well, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. You see, Jesus is basically saying, you're right, don't get married unless you're sure you can commit yourself to love your partner as an equal, as an equal for the rest of your life. Marriage, he saw, was a gift of God's creation, and it is only with a quality of partnership that the grace of God could be experienced. So that's marriage. What about those of us who are divorced? or those who are divorced and remarried, or those who were divorced before they became Christians, or those who've tried to save their marriages and been left with little option but to initiate divorce proceedings. For all of us, for all of us, this can be a painful passage. Marriages fail and relationships break down for the best of reasons, and the worst of reasons. That's something we can't escape. But you see, Jesus knows that. And by God's grace, with repentance and healing, restoration and recovery are possible. And they're possible because they lie at the heart of his gospel of grace. Not condemnation. Not lifelong guilt. And above all, not separation from God. Thankfully, adult and divorce, whether in thought, word, or deed, are not unforgivable sins. There's nothing more wonderful than having that assurance that when we confess our sins, when we truly forgive others, God is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse us all from unrighteousness. Then, as Paul writes to the Galatians, we can live by the Spirit, 
so that we don't have to gratify the desires of the flesh. And let's face it, guys, as Anglicans in a church started by a man with six wives, forgiveness goes without saying. Okay, well, that's all very well. What about lust? You're so glad you didn't pick this one up, Norman, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's all very well. Lust. What about lust? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Well, on the surface, the command to pluck out a troublesome eye or to get rid of offending hands and feet seems pretty drastic. Fortunately, there are few Christians whose zeal has exceeded their wisdom sufficiently to take this passage literally. Well, I hope there are. Actually, one notable exception was the third century church father, Origen of Alexandra. He did actually make himself into a eunuch. Ooh. It was so barbarous that the Council of Nicaea rightly forbade the practice in AD 3 to 25. Now, you see, Jesus wasn't advocating mutilation, but mortification. Not mutilation, but mortification. What Jesus is saying is this. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, don't look. Turn away. Behave as if you'd plucked them out and were now blind and so can't see the object which causes you to sin at all. And in the same way, if temptation causes you to sin through your hands, things you do, or your feet places you visit, then cut those things out of your lifestyle. Behave as if you'd actually cut off your hands or feet and flung them away. So you just couldn't do those things or visit wrong places. Do you get the idea? Do we get the idea? Mortification, not mutilation. And it's very interesting because Jesus actually uses the concept of mortification more than once, as, uh, just as a general reference when we're faced with temptations to any sin, not just sexual ones. He's really pointing out the importance of the relationship between our eyes and our hearts. The relationship between our eyes and our hearts. As Woody Allen once wryly remarked, it's hard to get your heart and your head to agree in life. In my case, they're not even friendly. In the Old Testament, Job claimed that he had learned this when he said, as you heard, if my step is turned away from the way and my heart has followed my eyes and if any spot has clung to my hands, if I've made a covenant with my eyes, then let what grows in me be rooted out. Jesus is saying that it's better to forego some temporary experience in this life in order to get a right relationship with God because it's going to be so much more satisfying, so much more eternally satisfying for all of us. 
In the Old Testament, the mosaic penalty for adultery was, sto was stoning, stoning to death, as you remember. But Jesus takes it to a new level and points out that the chain of sin, which ultimately leads to the physical act, such as adultery, starts in the mind. He's not forbidding, forbidding looking at someone. There's nothing wrong with appreciating beauty. As Nikki Gumbel at HDB points out, there's nothing to feel guilty about in feeling attracted towards somebody else. The Archbishop of Sydney, the Right Reverend Peter Jensen, actually confessed to being an adulterer. He said, by God's grace, I am a celibate adulterer. We're all sinners, saved by grace. What Jesus is challenging us to recognize is that sin begins in the heart when the mind rationalizes what the conscience denies. I was trying to think of an analogy that might help you with this. Can I ask, did you all brush your teeth this morning? One, only one or two heads nodding. Did you brush your teeth this morning? Yes. Can you visualize that toothpaste tube? Hold that in your mind. Hold that toothpaste tube in your mind. Because, just to give you an analogy, it's a lot harder to put the toothpaste back into the tube once it's been squeezed out, isn't it? Yeah? And that's really the picture that, we've, that we're getting here. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. With the possible exception of at least eight out of the Ten Commandments, most Christians no longer observe the law of Moses. We regard the Torah, the law of Moses, as fundamental to Judaism, not to Christianity. Jews believe in the Torah. We believe in Jesus, who freed us from the law. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Well, it's not. I'm afraid it's quite wrong. Because this Jesus, this Jesus of Matthew 5, came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And the gospel passage is all about Matthew's understanding of Jesus, who came to galvanize the people of God, not to choose a new people, but to lead the already chosen people into the presence of a full-on relationship with God. If society writes off the law of Moses as the law of sin and death, if even some Christians proclaim Jesus as the giver of a new law, an easy yoke to replace the hard one, we are doing society no service. Then we hijack the Judaism that Jesus died for. There are more than 13 million Jews today who don't, ex who, who don't experience Torah as the law of sin and death. For them, Torah is the way of life, granted by God within a covenant of pure grace as the incarnation of God's love for humankind. It's an invitation to become holy, to enter into a right relationship with the Creator God whether the yoke is easy or hard is not the point. The point is that it was given by God the right relationship as the crowning glory for our lives. So just to draw to a close, this passage is all about healthy relationships. First and foremost, getting into a right relationship with God 
but also getting into a right relationship with each other. Hands up if you've listened to The Moral Maze on Radio 4. Yeah, quite a few hands. It's a great program, isn't it? And it's a great program because it actually deals with the present confusion, the present moral confusion that our society is being faced with. And guys, when you listen to that program, just realize that what Jesus is saying here is that we, we can shine as beacons of light for those who are confused and bewildered by the moral maze facing societies. For us grandparents, it's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity to witness as a solid, firm foundation for our families. Think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This pursuit of righteousness or right relationships as fulfillment of the law has as its ultimate aim obtaining a right relationship with God as well as with each other because the benefits are priceless and eternal. It's never been a matter of slavishly following rules but of honoring relationships with aliens as well as with our kinsfolk. The Torah of Moses and the teachings of Jesus, his Torah with a small t, both agree on that. When we honor each other, when we love each other as ourselves and as equals, then and only then are we ready to discover what the law, the prophets, and the gospel are truly about. Amen.